the long-term future use of gas well to 2050 is in the high heat space. It's not in space heating. It's not in homes and offices and so forth. But where you're raising steam, where your CH4 molecule itself is important, all of those uses are very much more difficult to decarbonize. And yes, hydrogen may absolutely come around the corner at some point, but that corner is still a way off. We can give you zero carbon gas from the end of 20, early 26 onwards. That's an, an awful lot faster than most other things, and actually probably at quite competitive prices. And it's the fastest way of decarbonizing those high heat processes. Welcome back to the Future Engineering Club podcast. My name is Jack Lomas and join me as I speak to some of the brightest minds in the built environment, hearing firsthand their experience building the future of our planet. For this episode, I'm so excited to welcome Philip Lucas, CEO at Future Biogas, the UK's largest producer of biomethane. As you'll hear in the episode, biomethane is a hugely valuable resource that is generated through entirely renewable means, applying the anaerobic digestion process to organic matter such as crops and sewage to generate a valuable source of electricity. To put this into perspective, each year, Future Biogas as a company alone produce over 500 gigawatt hours of biogas, which is enough energy to power over 40,000 homes. Anaerobic digestion is such a fascinating process, and we dive into the nuts and bolts of it, and I'm so excited for you to hear it. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider giving it a share on LinkedIn and a follow on Spotify, as it'd really help promote our conversation to others who might find it helpful. And with that, let's welcome Philip. Hey, Philip, thanks so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it. Hi, Jack. Good to be with you. So I'm the chief executive of Future Biogas. I started the business almost 15 years ago now. We run a series of biogas plants, mainly injecting gas into the grid here in the UK. Brilliant. So for those unfamiliar, with, would you mind just giving a bit of instruction to it and why it plays such an important role in the world that we live in today? So there's a couple of things that are important about biogas. Biogas is a great way of turning organic matter into a, a substitute for methane in the grid, right? A renewable alternative to fossil methane that we would otherwise take out of the North Sea or wherever. And the biogas process is, is very omnivorous. So you can put almost any form of feedstock in and end up with gas, fats, oils, celluloses, hemicelluloses, a whole raft of things, which means that you can digest wastes. A whole variety of waste, whether it's sewage sludges or whether it's food waste or whether it's animal manures. But it also means you can digest a, a whole load of plant matter and you can uh, create farming rotations that deliver biomass for gas production as well as food. And that becomes a very important part of our story. But in general, the biogas process has been around for quite a long time. The sewage industry in particular have been doing it for, for decades and decades. And over the last sort of 20, 30 years, um, the continent and the UK have picked up on biogas from all manner of wastes. And in the UK, we now have more or less enough capacity to digest all the food waste, all the unavoidable food waste uh, that we have today, which is a great achievement, right? And the other thing to say about biogas is that you can do two things with biogas. You can make electricity immediately on site or... And that's the uh, the much more pertinent future use. You can scrub up the, the raw biogas, which is a fermentation product. It's, it's literally like brewing gas. And you can scrub it up and stick it into a pipeline. And then people elsewhere can use it for a whole variety of different things. Oh, so it takes everything. All organic material. And I always say all organic waste should go to biogas because you make energy with them. 
and then you return the nutrients in those organic wastes back to the fields. Now you say, what about you? What does your business do, Philip? Don't you use mainly energy crops? And you're absolutely right. The much bigger opportunity in biogas is to take energy crops grown as part of a regenerative and renewable farming rotation and make big amounts of green gas that we can use as a substitute in the network. Would you mind just expanding on what we mm-hmm. mean exactly by energy crops? So energy crops in our case is things like maize, whole crop rye and grasses. And there are a variety of new sort of companion cropping arrangements where you grow two crops, for which is better for a soil fertility point of view. And there's a variety of ag wastes that you can use as well. You can use straw and things like that. And energy crops fit into the farming rotation as part of a more holistic way of farming. So rather than putting in wheat and then wheat and then wheat or wheat rape or whatever, you break up that farming rotation a little bit. That helps you with with a whole raft of agronomy issues, things like herbicide-resistant weeds and and a whole sort of soil-borne pests, but it also helps you build up your soil health. And over the last sort of 10 years, as we've built more and more of these plants, we've learned more and more about the many benefits you can get from that. And we've effectively created a a, a new paradigm for decarbonizing agriculture. So reducing diesel use, reducing fertilizer inputs, reducing other inputs, whilst also producing green gas. So this is really interesting because it seems as though it's this process which produces this highly valuable, highly usable resource. Yep. Yep. And it can take so many different types of ingredients to generate. So it, it almost so feels can- like a bit of a win-win. It is. And absolutely, we need to push animal manures that we that we don't avoid, that we, have, that we can't avoid in the future. We need to push them to anaerobic digestion. Absolutely, all unavoidable food waste should be going to anaerobic digestion. But that's not going to cover a big uh, slice of our gas use. And before you ask, why don't we just switch to electricity or, or hydrogen or whatever, we think, and I think the market bears it out, that there is a, a space for a natural gas substitute as we transition to potentially a hydrogen economy or whatever over the next 20, 30 years, because particularly high heat applications are very difficult to decarbonize in other ways. And I do want to come on to that, but Mm -hmm. I guess first, just out of interest, all of this manure, all of this food waste and all various types of organic matter that we can tap into here, where would that ordinarily go? In the UK in in 20, 25 years ago, a lot of it was still going to landfill. And of course, if you don't, these days, very often, if you don't separate it out of the the waste stream, then it will go to an incinerator. And both are obviously, for different reasons, not very good. Landfill should be avoided at all costs, but incineration effectively loses all of the nutrients in that organic matter. So if you send food waste into a standard incinerator, then all you end up with is fly ash at the end of the day. Whereas if you put it through an anaerobic digester, you end up with something called digestate, which is the output of all anaerobic digesters. It's called digestate. It's a sort of fertilizer matter that can be part solid and part liquid that can go back onto growing crops and deliver a lot of the inputs that you would otherwise get out of bagged fertilizer. So then that then avoids the use of nitrates etc i imagine it avoids the use of artificial fertilizers be they ammonium nitrate or be they potash or or potassium so you you don't have to put as much from a bag onto the field because you're much more is going around in a circle whether that circle is a big circle where you've got food waste coming in from homes and supermarkets and ending up on the field those foodstuffs could have come from all over the world or whether you've got a smaller circle of a livestock farm with animal manures 
or an arable farm in the east of England growing a variety of energy crops in as part of its food rotation. And then those energy crops go through the plant, they make green gas, and out the back comes this lovely fertilizer that goes on to the next crops, be they energy crops or be they food crops. Better for soil, better for the planet. And also cheaper for farmers, I imagine, because some of these chemicals that they usually put on. Certainly the last 12 months, uh, and it has been a proper roller coaster, right? Uh, uh, But fertilizer prices went up fivefold last year. And so suddenly the focus has been on all forms of organic fertilizers, be they animal manures or be they digested from anaerobic digestion plants or whatever. And indeed on saving fertilizer. So one of the other things people are looking at now is amending their farming rotations to include crops that fix nitrogen so that they have nitrogen being fixed in the soil in the break crop or the cover crop before they go back to a food crop we're trying to combine the, that nitrogen fixing with an energy crop for instance putting in rye and vetch or putting in maize and beans so you end up with an energy crop that you take off and a load of lovely nitrogen in the soil all those sorts of things have come sharply into the focus in the last 18 24 months as energy prices have gone completely bonkers but also in, in the wider sort of farm decarbonization sense, the return of any form of organic matter to soil is much more important and, and, and valued much more now than it was 20, 30 years ago when we were at the tail end of the green revolution and there was all this wonderful stuff out of a bag you could chuck on an acre and you'd get great yield. I, I bet farmers are biting your hand off. Yeah, and we've, we're finding a lot of interest. We're finding a lot of interest from farmers, particularly ironically in the UK because of the change to subsidy regimes post-Brexit the common agricultural policy fell away. And in the UK, we've now got a system of subsidies much more focused on environmental outcomes, soil health and water quality and things like that, which I think will serve as an interesting example for Europe when they come to revise the CAP in a couple of years time. But certainly for farmers here, it's brought that into focus. And there's a lot more farmers who are attending events like Groundswell, the uh, the regenerative farming show that happens once a year near Stevenage. And we think that's, and we've noticed that's one of the things that's really piquing farmers' interest. Because the other thing they can see is all the other buyers of their commodities. So the guys who buy their wheat or the guys who buy their oilseed rape or the guys who buy buy their beans or their potatoes, all just coming over the hill and going, oh, you need to reduce your carbon footprint, Mr. Farmer. How are you going to go about doing that? Tell us how you're going to do that. And they aren't all waving big checks, unfortunately, as is always the case. So a lot of that heavy lifting is going to have to be done on farm. That's really interesting. I want to move on to what happens during the process then. Yep. So you bring in all of this, yep. well, consider waste. Yep. You put it through the process. What does that anaerobic digestion process look like? The anaerobic digestion process itself is a very natural process. It happens in nature in places like the rumen of a cow, the front stomach of a cow, which is why Daisy belches up methane when she's chewing the cud. It also happens in, in swamps, which is why you get swamp lights, which is little gas flares in, the, in a swamp. And that process, we've just harnessed it in a big tank, which we add our energy crops to, or which other people add their manures or their food waste to. And you get a consortium of microorganisms that just digests everything in there. And it happens in a load of stages. And there's tens and hundreds of different microorganisms all acting together in this big cascade. And the bottom product of that cascade is methane and CO2 carbon dioxide. So those are the two main product outcomes. And and biogas is depending on your input materials, whether it's more fats and oils or whether it's more sugars and and celluloses, your output is 50 to 60% methane and and 40 to 50% 
So what do we then do with those two outputs? You either stick the whole lot in a gas engine and make electricity, which is the traditional model, and that's what you see a lot on the continent still, or, and what's become much more advanced and uh, much cheaper to do in the last decade, you scrub up the gas to 99% methane so that you can stick it in a pipeline as a one-for-one replacement. And obviously, you need a pipe connection to the national grid, clearly. And then you have, as a result of that, you also have, in most cases, a very clean stream of carbon dioxide. So that CO2, which is, in principle, negative carbon, because the plants have removed the carbon from the atmosphere as they've created sugars and then celluloses and then built the plant. That CO2 is already being used in a number of cases as a substitute for fossil CO2 in the food and beverage market and in glass houses and so forth. But the much bigger opportunity, we think, is to take that carbon dioxide for sequestration. So stick the gas in the grid so that high heat users somewhere can decarbonize their processes tomorrow rather than waiting for hydrogen or praying for lots of cheap electricity. And then take the carbon dioxide that you've got as a sort of side product, liquefy that, aggregate it together and send it for permanent sequestration in in one of the facilities currently being developed. Because then you've created a an energy factory that's decarbonizing the farm, remove replacing fossil gas with zero carbon gas, and taking CO2 out of the atmosphere, which is a quite an extraordinary thing to be able to do. It's a pretty holistic process, isn't it? It is. And the problem with anaerobic digestion has been, always has been, that it's incredibly complicated and it has loads of positive aspects. It has a lot of what people describe as positive externalities, other things that are going on that are positive about it. And It's very easy to explain, and they are incredibly wonderful things, solar farms and wind farms and so forth. They're very binary and a load of electrons shooting off them. And then you come along with anaerobic digestion, which is generally smaller scale. Yeah, we can't, we're not going to catch up with SSE and Dogger Bank, unfortunately, but has all these peripheral benefits of being able to decarbonize agriculture, of creating rural employment, of of being a, a tool for carbon sequestration, and a whole raft of other things that that help the 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 environment. And it's quite difficult to explain to policymakers sometimes. You can even see me now trying to get it all out. <laughs> yeah, it's like a list of benefits, isn't it? It, it is exactly that. Also different stakeholders and different yes. fisheries. Absolutely that. Absolutely that. No, you've got advantages for DEFRA on the one hand and for Desnes on the other and for Bayes in the middle. There you are, there's three government ministries you're going to be talking to. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but also what's just come to mind is I also imagine that you're generating carbon credits through some of that process. That's exactly it. So the the green to the grid as a substitute and in in our future biogases business model, (laughs) up to date, that's all been subsidized. That's all been paid for by things like the renewable heat incentive and in our our electric plant by the feed-in tariffs and so forth, which is great. But those subsidies are falling away and 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 rightly because we can't afford to do the green transition on subsidy. We can afford to pump prime it, but not to pay for it. And so we've moved to an unsubsidized model where corporates are paying for that green gas because they want to be able to demonstrate they're using zero carbon inputs, right? Separately, if you then take that carbon dioxide byproduct and take it for sequestration, you will absolutely generate very high integrity carbon credits because you can demonstrate the additionality. That is to say, this has happened because someone's paid for it. You can demonstrate the, the quantities very precisely, because you're dealing in literally tons of liquid CO2. And of course, you can demonstrate the permit of of a geological repository versus soil carbon or a forestation or everything else, all of which we need to do. 
but none of which comes with the sort of cast iron guarantee of sticking it in a in a geological repository that might have held fossil fuels for the last four million years. Interesting. So high integrity carbon credits. Yeah. You be compared then compared to the other forms of carbon capture that we see in the world. Obviously, the yeah. carbon credit market is exactly a bit of a controversial one these days. And there's a lot of skepticism and criticism around some of the quality of the carbon credits being generated. Quite right. Quite the right. Carbon credits generated through anaerobic digestion, very high integrity. And maybe there's, there's, one there's, that there's two there's exactly there's two sources of high integrity credits around direct air capture and bioenergy carbon capture. And direct air capture has to demonstrate the the low carbon nature of the energy used, the electricity mainly. And bioenergy and carbon capture has to demonstrate the sustainability of the input feedstocks. So it can't be that you're you're making some sort of other product or whatever, or using a load of coal-fired power to make your CO2. But that's down to us. We're working with a series of accreditation agencies. We're looking to create a full transparency on that chain so that we can dem demonstrate very high integrity carbon credits, because you've then got a, a methodology that's, that, that should generate a very high premium on the basis that you can show the footprint all the way through is very low. And yeah, absolutely, as I say, we need to do biochar and enhanced mineralization, which is medium term, hundreds and thousands of years, perhaps, of sequestration. And we also need to do afforestation and soil carbon and, and all of those things. But we mustn't kid ourselves that they're not comparable products. We need to do a bit of everything. And what I try and say to corporate offtakers and others is they should always look at it as a little bit of a buffet and they should be heaping up their plate with, with the carbohydrates, the rice and the bread and so forth, which is the staples of decarbonization of, of credits because get good quality products in afforestation and soil carbon, absolutely. But you're gonna, that's where you're going to spend the bulk of your money. And then you need to spend some of your money at the moment on the higher order ones, the biochar, the mineralization, the DAX, the BEX. Because if you don't spend any money in those, they, will, they won't become cheaper. And you won't actually be demonstrating a transition to high integrity credits. Brilliant. Brilliant. So the this anaerobic digestion process generates carbon dioxide and biomethane. What are the uses of biomethane then? We touched on it briefly earlier, but yep. what is the spectrum of yep. the so cases? So what we think um, is that actually gas, the future of uh, the long-term future use of gas well to 2050 and potentially beyond is in the high heat space. It's not in space heating. It's not in homes and offices and so forth, where electrification, insulation and so forth, most of the time should be able to deal with that because you're generating relatively low temperatures. But where you're raising steam, where your CH4 molecule itself is important, all of those uses are very much more difficult to decarbonize. And yes, hydrogen may absolutely come around the corner at some point, but that corner is still a way off. And at the moment, as of if, you, if, you, if we started talking today and given the processes and planning and everything else we have and new plants we're building, we can give you zero carbon gas from the end of 20, early 26 onwards. That's at an awful lot faster than most other things and actually probably at quite competitive prices to what we're hearing about the, the requirements for hydrogen. And it's just that it's, it's the fastest way of decarbonizing those high heat processes where you need three, 400 degrees to raise steam or the same for frying or 800, 900 degrees to bake, to kiln bricks or to in a paint shop for a vehicle manufacturer or even higher temperatures in processed chemistry. All of those things, fantastically expensive to decarbonize with electricity, just really doesn't work, doesn't make sense. But often and almost nine times out of 10 run on gas today. 
And so a gas substitute is a plug-in drop-in alternative, right? A lot of the big industry are now starting to transition towards a world with hydrogen, as you mentioned. Yep. And there are various grants, subsidies, et cetera, to enable. Yep. Are there any big barriers for big industry to adopt biomethane? They need to change the process? Or- the cynic in me, who, who had a father who was in the oil industry, always likes to think that one of the issues with, with biomethane is it's too small, whereas hydrogen is a very much a sort of large process reaction that you can work at refinery scale. And so the big players in the industry like it because it's just a big story, right? We can build really big units making blue hydrogen, purple hydrogen, green hydrogen, gray hydrogen, all these hydrogens. Whereas biomethane is unfortunately, and it's that's always been its problem, a bit of a cottage industry. And all of our plants, for instance, are hyperlocal, right? We, when we look at new sites and we're looking at getting feedstocks in, we know full well that our energy crop feedstocks will probably never travel on average more than seven to 10 miles. That's genuinely hyperlocal, wonderful from a sustainability point of view, decarbonizing local farms, keeping down the footprint, deployable across 6 million hectares of farmland in the UK in, in, in considerable scale, right? You could be making terawatt hours of green gas, but that's always seen through the lens of oil majors and big traders and big chemicals companies, always quite small. And seen through the lens of big energy users who, for whom energy is a huge input, always expensive and far off. But the great example of how it should be used is, and we might come on to that, is our recent transaction with AstraZeneca. Go on, I'll bite. Tell us all about it. AstraZeneca came, have a very challenging net zero target. They set themselves at the end of 2025 to be net zero scope one and two, which is fantastically challenging, but amazingly brave. And they came out in 2020, late 2020, and said, we use about 350 gigawatts of gas in the UK. We need to decarbonize those. And all sorts of solutions were proposed to them. And they effectively worked out that they would be needing to pay a premium to wholesale gas and probably a sort of multiple, two, two and a half times, something like that of wholesale gas, possibly a bit more, in order to get genuine, fully additional, unsubsidized green gas. And then they went away. And the way I like to describe it is there was a lot of banging and clattering in the shed and a lot of sawing and so forth. And they came out again and they said, we've electrified, we've insulated, we've upgraded our capital equipment, we've done half a dozen other things. And actually, our demand is now, I would say, 230 gig or something. So it's fallen significantly. And over the following two, three years of discussing with them, that's continued to creep down which is a brilliant story. And I, and I don't think they make enough of it because it's a sort of object lesson for everybody else out there. We all know the cheapest kilowatt is the one you don't use. They really put a lot of work behind bringing down use and then substituting in alternative fuels. And what they then said is, fine, we're going to sign up with you guys, Future Biogas, on a 15-year contract. We're bringing in new capital equipment. So we want the comfort and certainty that we're going to get that gas. And it's effectively... We're going to inject the gas at a site in Lincolnshire that we're already constructing. And then they will take it out at a variety of sites across the UK, their main Macclesfield manufacturing site where they need to raise lots of steam, but also in in Speak and in Cambridge, their HQ and a few other places. And there is a gas shipper sat in the middle who will make sure that the amounts we inject on the one hand and the amounts they take out on the other hand match. Relatively straightforward, really, when you think about it, and no different to buying green electricity. So buying electricity from a wind farm in the North Sea or a a massive solar plant somewhere or whatever. So with that agreement with yourselves, Mm. embroil the reliable source or 
AstraZeneca for all of their processes, but also it allowed them to continue that decarbonizing journey. And pharmaceuticals is fascinating, but I come from the water sector. Yeah. Know that biomethane, biogases, et cetera, are being used in the water sector for the water treatment process. Yeah. Would you mind maybe just expanding on what the opportunity yeah. is? Ultimately, sewage sludge is another organic material, right? What comes down the pipe into one of one of your plants is a whole load of lovely stuff, but most of it, once you take out the plastics and other bits, sieve those out, is organic, right? So uh, there are quite a few digesters across the country already. So Trent have a number, Anglian Water have a number, or Yorkshire have a number. Everybody's got some digesters, and a lot of sewage sludge already goes through an anaerobic process and is turned into gas. And then you can do a number of things with that. You can run engines on site to power your own sites, because obviously sewage works have lots of pumps and lots of stirrers and lots of other stuff that use lots of electric. Or you can scrub it up and like we do with most of ours, stick it in the gas grid and instead potentially buy green electricity from the wind farm or the solar plant around the corner. And that 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 opportunity is has only been extended with the sort of advent of more of a focus on liquid wastes, which used to be land spread. And the Environment Agency aren't very keen on that whole land spreading operation. So much more of it is now being taken for treatment. Who's the obvious candidate to treat large quantities of relatively low energy, but nonetheless too pokey for land spreading wastes? The water companies. They're the natural home for it. And so there's quite a lot going on in that space, which is great to see, because all of that organic matter is going through anaerobic digestion. It's being turned into energy. And then in most cases, the, uh, the the sort of biosolids coming out of the back can still be returned to land. There are a few little unanswered questions there about microplastics and other sorts of things. But fundamentally, that is certainly a, a, a big part of the circular economy. Really, it sounds as though it's one of these processes that has been available for, for a while now mm-hmm. and in use around the UK and elsewhere around the world. It's also one, though, that I don't think is that well known to many people in the industry. I'm really interested to hear from you, maybe some of the misconceptions that you've come around biogas, biomethane, et cetera. What are some of the things that people get most confused about your topic? So one of the things that that is a very hot button topic is the distinction between food and and waste AD, crop AD. And that's partly driven by early subsidy regimes on the continent that drove a combination of manures and energy crops into plants that effectively created zones where there was wall-to-wall maize all summer in the northwestern corner of Germany, for instance. Now, that misconception has been carried across uh, Europe, but actually that's not necessarily true. And what at the moment in France and Spain and Italy, um, the the Italian Biogas Association have done a great amount of work on uh, what they call biogas done right, uh, which is all around integrating into a rotation so that in a farming rotation, you produce mainly food and a bit of energy crop. And the energy crop you use to make a bit the energy and then return the fertilizer to the food. Because we haven't had that much AD over the, because we're a bit late in starting with it, there's a huge opportunity in the UK market to, to make anaerobic digestion, to make green gas through anaerobic digestion and to use in particular renewably sourced energy crops. That's probably the biggest misconception always that waste always has to be better. That's not necessarily the case, particularly not when you're effectively mixing markets. So what can sometimes happen is, and, and there's a bit of a risk of that in some jurisdictions at the moment, is that you're effectively using the energy consumer to subsidize intensive livestock agriculture. That's not the way we're going to decarbonize the planet by cross-subsidizing. Either the polluter pays or not, 
but you can't have the vegetarian at the fuel pump effectively subsidizing the, the dairy farm over there. That, in the long run, isn't going to work. The other things that in a local area around anaerobic digestion are often the case is, oh my goodness, it smells and oh my goodness, it it generates lots of transport issues and oh, oh goodness, they're ugly. Although actually in our experience, most people who, who live near our plants actually think they blend into the landscape quite well and they shouldn't smell. You know, only a badly run anaerobic digestion plant smells. And in terms of transport volumes, it's very much where you cite them. And nothing in this world generates no transport, but it's all a question of sensibly locating plants and so forth. And then and then one of the other misconceptions, oh, perhaps that's a bit more true, is anaerobic digestion is more expensive. Anaerobic digestion isn't going to be able to go down that cost curve that wind and solar did, where suddenly it becomes parity with, with fossil energy. We are going to need a bit more help from a carbon price to push that over the line. But I, as I always say to corporates we're talking to, you need to use less and pay more. And those things go hand in hand. And over the next over the next five, 10 years, you will see policy and carbon costs and the general cost of green gas substitutes of any form go up and up and up. And ultimately, you'd probably be better off buying unsubsidized biomethane in the market and just cutting out the fossil fuels. Fascinating. One last question to finish. What are you most looking forward to in the future in the world of energy and the energy transition? So what am I most looking forward to? I'm most looking forward to a world where actually we manage to create a carbon pricing mechanism that nudges people towards the right behavior without making it too mandatory. And, and I, have, I have reasonable high hopes about the carbon border adjustment that the European Union are bringing in, that it will level the playing field a little bit, because it's always very difficult to tell people you mustn't do this and you mustn't do that. But if you build over time an understanding of the price of one over the other, then people will naturally go, OK, maybe I will have less of that or more of that or switch to that or do this or do that. And that will encourage changes in the way we we deal with transport. It will encourage changes in the way we deal with food. It will encourage everybody to think about uh, a little bit more about their footprint. But how you bring that in is a very big headache for politicians, unfortunately. I think a lot of change all comes down to having the right incentives in place. Yeah. And the Inflation Reduction Act in the US yeah. was a good example yeah. of actually the government put a bit, a bit of a set incentives yeah. in place. Yeah. But then for every sort of $1 public sector invested, I think it's brought in sort of $7 or so from the private sector and yeah. created so many jobs and mm -hmm. really gave the, I guess, the sort of energy transition and the clean, the clean space, some massive boost, massive organic boost. So again, but if you look at it, a lot of European subsidy regimes over the last 20, 30 years have done the same thing, right? Future biogas wouldn't be here today building unsubsidized biomethane plants for market-leading corporates if it weren't for the fact that we already ran a dozen plants that were on subsidy. So we'd made a lot of mistakes. We've built some great assets. We've now got a decade's worth of operational experience and all the farming experience. None of that would have happened without the re renewable heat incentive and the feed-in tariffs. To my mind, that's all money well spent. And when you look, look at Germany, for instance, they had a huge solar boom in the 80s and 90s, and they built lots of factories in the early noughties and so forth. And most of that disappeared and went to China. But the legacy is the Chinese coming into that market and now making solar energy so cheap that it's the go-to blindingly obvious solution for large parts of the world. 
and it, without that contribution, without those early contributions from people paying subsidies, and the IRA is, is similar, it's a different sort of way of nudging people, without those contributions, we wouldn't be where we are. That's not to say there isn't a, a mountain of, of work still to do, right? Absolutely. Philip, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Not at all, Jack. It's a pleasure. You've been listening to the Future Engineering Club podcast. Thanks so much for joining me. I really hope you enjoyed it. Keep an eye out for next week's episode. And in the meantime, give me a shout on LinkedIn and let me know what you thought. Thanks and goodbye.